Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. One of the most common requests for help we get is about how to support students who are grieving. Teachers, school counselors, administrators, and concerned caregivers all recognize that children and teens spend a lot of their time in educational settings, and they don't check their grief at the door. Their grief goes with them to math and to lunch, to art class, and even to soccer practice after school. Brittany Collins was one of these students. Her father died of breast cancer the summer before her sophomore year of high school. It was also at a time when her mother was receiving treatment for her own cancer. Brittany, like many students who were grieving, had educators who responded in ways that were helpful and those whose responses weren't so much. No one said any one thing that was magically useful or harmful, but there were those who continued to show up and be a stable, caring presence and who offered Brittany opportunities, opportunities to explore her own reactions, to express what she was thinking and feeling, and to know that there were adults who cared. Brittany's high school experience helped shape her educational and career choices, leading her to become an author, educator, and curriculum designer. Her work focuses on supporting teachers and students' social and emotional well-being, especially in times of adversity. Her new book, Learning from Loss, A Trauma-Informed Approach to Supporting Grieving Students, is the culmination of this work. While Brittany's work is focused on educational settings, the insights and wisdom she shares in our conversation are applicable to pretty much anyone, even those who just want to better understand their own experiences and histories. Side note, I had the honor of being interviewed by Brittany while she was researching her book, Learning from Loss, but I'd recommend it even if I wasn't part of it. Okay, here's my conversation with Brittany. Brittany, thank you so much for coming on Grief Out Loud to talk with me and to talk about your book, Learning from Loss. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thanks so much for having me, Jana. It's my pleasure and privilege and I want to share with listeners that I had the privilege of interviewing you several years ago and highlighting your expertise in my recent book, Learning from Loss. And so it's especially exciting to have this opportunity to engage in this conversation with you. Yeah, I love when we get to like flip the mics and now I'm the one asking the questions, which I still haven't decided which is the most comfortable role for me to be in the asking Mm -hmm. or the answering. I think I like both of them equally, but really excited to be able to share your work and your knowledge with listeners today. And, you know, what draws you to this work specifically? I mean, you've been in the educational realm for for years and really focusing on loss and trauma-informed practices and how educators and teachers can really be showing up for students who are grieving. Certainly. So I would say that really the impetus for my work started when I was a bereaved student. So I lost my father to male breast cancer when I was 14, the summer before my sophomore year of high school. It was a time when my mother was also in 
treatments for her first of two breast cancer diagnoses. And so it was a time, you know, entering adolescence, experiencing this profound close loss and realizing, you know, later in life, how teachers, I was very privileged to have many caring adults in my circle who really had a a longitudinal impact on my life and inspired me to go into education, but also in a grief context were really there for me and supported me through that experience. At the same time, I also experienced and witnessed how um, grief and loss sometimes make adults uncomfortable. And there was, you know, some social discomfort, both with adults and with peers, right? Fellow students. I think grief can be an othering experience. And I certainly lived through that. And also on the flip side, when we're intentional about our approach, working with young people who are experiencing loss, and that might be a form of loss that's not directly connected to a death. But when we're intentional about that approach, those relationships can really have lifelong impacts. And so it was this both and for me. And then going in, I knew I wanted to study education, but going into my first education program out of high school, really thinking about social emotional learning, identity development, all of these things also relate to grief and grief and loss impact all of these entities in education. And so it was this sort of reciprocal relationship. And really, I just had this inquiry of how do we do this better? That's why I wanted to speak with folks like you and other experts in the field, because I approach this work as certainly the formerly bereaved student and then as an educator, but not as a psychological professional or trained mental health professional or social worker, right? And so I think it's really important to bring in all of those perspectives into these conversations and just really think together about how how do we do this well, how do we do this better. And now we see, you know, I started my work prior to the pandemic, but now we see a really unique time of loss and extended time of loss in various iterations. The work has only, I think, heightened in terms of significance and relevance. It's interesting, Brittany, because so many people, I think, who have a personal tie to whatever the motivation is for the work that they're doing in the world, it's often rooted in a place of, it was really terrible for me, so I want to make it better for other people to not go through it in such a... um, not so great way that I did. But from what you're saying, it's it was you also had examples of how it was really supportive with teachers and other educators. And I wonder if there's an example you could give of like, what is something that one of those teachers did or said that really was helpful? Yeah, two examples really come to mind. So a dance teacher who I had the privilege of working with all through high school, and also my high school advisor, my dance teacher, because she introduced me, and not always in an explicit way, but in her own way, to the ways in which yoga and exercise or dance or art can be an outlet in times of grief. She had recently lost her mother and so also was experiencing her own form of loss as an adult, was relatively open about that, um, but really respected my own boundaries. So I was a teen who did not want to talk about my loss at all, despite, you know, appreciating the presence of these folks in my life. I was not someone who wanted to sit down and have a heart to heart conversation. I wanted school to be a place where I was just a teen like everyone else and didn't always have to engage with that story. But my dance teacher um, actually offered to have a tribute performance in memory of my father. And that was a really wonderful coping mechanism because it was also nonverbal. And so it was a way to kind of 
acknowledge and honor this loss, but not have to tell the story or speak about it. Um, and yoga and meditation ended up serving me well throughout life, right? And so my my dance teacher was the first person to introduce those sorts of coping mechanisms and strategies. And then my high school advisor, who I mentioned, she, again, not so much in a direct consideration of loss, but established a sense of routine and connection with me. And so I had, I think, weekly or biweekly check-in meetings with her. And it was just a half hour of like, hey, come hang out in my office and talk about how things are going for you, talk about classes, whatever it was. But having that one caring adult and that consistency of having access to this relationship in a predictable way across years. And so it was typical in my school to um, switch advisors year to year, but I had the, the benefit of having her for four years, which was not typical. And just really having that opportunity for our relationship to grow was especially helpful. What I'm really appreciating about those examples is that in neither one was it some magical phrase or statement or perfect thing that either one of them said to you the moment they found out your dad died, which is where I think so much of the pressure comes from for, you know, people who are a teacher or whatever, a family member, friend, someone's like, I heard someone died. I have to say the perfect thing to the student or all is lost. And so just really wanting to highlight that it was the consistency, the ongoing relationship, and the variety of opportunities for connection, not just this like thing that somebody wrote in a bereavement card to you two days after your dad died. Absolutely. And I talk a lot in my writing about kind of facilitating furthered connection as being the goal in grief support and thinking about things like vicarious trauma or compassion fatigue with the potential emotional toll that can happen when teachers or other caring professionals are routinely exposed to others' losses or experiences of trauma. Like, I think that's a very important part of this conversation that both young people and the caring adults are impacted by a loss experience. And research shows that one of the best ways to kind of prevent and be proactive about that compassion fatigue um, is by thinking intentionally about furthering connection. So you're not so much the savior, quote unquote, you're not the one person that has to enter a grieving student's life and make it better, but what instead can you facilitate for that student? So, you know, furthered connection with peers or with colleagues or with activities, like I was mentioning yoga and meditation and things like that, you're widening the, the world of connection for folks who are impacted. And so that takes kind of that onus or that pressure off of you to be the one person saying the one right thing to make a difference, which we know often isn't what, what makes the biggest difference. Yeah, almost like thinking about educators in this realm of being conduits, as you mentioned, like facilitators of connection and, and identifying students who might need extra support and then finding those supports. And, you know, you mentioned earlier with, you know, that your book, you were writing your book pre-pandemic and then it came out mid-pandemic and thinking about how many more students now are being impacted by the death of a parent or a caregiver or an extended family member and how that's also affecting their educators who are also having their own experiences of additional deaths in their lives. And I'm just curious with, since the book has come out, what kind of feedback you've received or how you've seen that work be put into place in the context of this, uh, you know, 
amplified levels of grief happening? Mm -hmm. Well, I think through a somewhat optimistic lens, although that might seem like the wrong word to use, I think grief is a, a more dominant part of our conversation or more accepted part of our conversation right in this moment because it is so universal. I think that grief in, in Western culture at least has been a relatively isolated and uh, a light, an isolated experience an isolating experience and something that is often surrounded by silence. Like we don't always, we're socialized to not always know how to react or respond. If we're grieving, we feel like we maybe can't express that grief or be totally open with those around us about what we're going through. But now in the context of the pandemic, I think that certainly loss of a person, but also other forms of grief that we're all experiencing, grief for our former lives, grief for a sense of normalcy, those are things that are, are coming into conversation in a different way alongside you know, mental health in general. But I think at the same time, there's certainly heightened urgency around the need for this work in the school system. We know that prior to the pandemic, approximately seven out of 10 teachers had a student in their classroom who was bereaved, actively grieving. Um, now that is likely much higher. We know that 1.5 million children around the world um, lost either a primary or secondary caregiver. So that could be a grandparent who was caring for them um, due to COVID-19. And that was the, the number in the fall. So that was pre-Omicron and that's likely continued to ascend. And I'm also always aware of how um, DEI, how equity work intersects with this. And so we're seeing that by POC youth are at a much higher rate of bereavement, COVID-related bereavement because of the systemic health inequities that the pandemic is only underscoring, right? They were, they've always been there, but this is bringing a lot of that to light. Last week I was reading a lot and there seemed to be like through the news, this, um, I don't know, like a change in the zeitgeist around the pandemic. And it were, there was a lot of talk of people saying, well, it's just been long enough. I just want to be done with it because it's been long enough. And I was thinking, oh, this is so familiar. Why is this so familiar? I was like, oh, because this is what happens to people who are dealing with grief their community or their implicitly or explicitly gives out the message of like, don't you think it's been long enough? And so I'm, I'm really curious to see how I think maybe beginning of pandemic, mid pandemic, there was an increase in a willingness to talk about grief and to honor the different types of losses. But I'm wondering now if we're going to move into a phase where everyone's like, I don't want to hear about it anymore. I'm tired of talking about it. I just, it's been long enough. <laughs> so I'll be interested to see what the feedback is that you get from the teachers that you're supporting and, and other folks in the field around that. And just anecdotally, I have a close friend who recently lost someone to COVID and, and has been open about how painful that sort of messaging is, this post-pandemic sort of messaging about even removing mask mandates is something that can be really triggering for a family that just experienced a COVID-related loss where a mask could have saved that person's life, right? And so it's really um, challenging, I think, to have this sort of polarity of folks who are ready to, to move on and forget about restrictions and folks who are being impacted every day in a really immediate way and to have both of those things be true at the same time. Similar to what you were saying, it falls into that sort of pattern that we see when folks are saying, shouldn't be over it already when your your loved one has passed away one, six, 12 months ago. You know, in your book, you, you do such a great job of outlining really specific ways with examples that educators and teachers can start thinking about 
how do I become more grief responsive, which I really appreciate that terminology. And I wondered if you could give us a few examples of ways that in a day-to-day way, educators are able to create a grief responsive environment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I think a lot in my practice about three sort of tiers of grief responsive teaching. So I think about the classroom environment or the learning environment. I think about interpersonal relationships, and then I think about curricula. And so those are three tenets that are at play you know, every day in the classroom. And so if we think about the environment in the classroom, things, and, and you spoke about this when we had our interview for the book, things like routine and consistency and predictability can be really important in a grief context when a young person is grieving and is maybe lacking that sense of predictability um, at home or outside of school. How can the learning environment be structured in a way that supports that sense of dependability? They know what to expect. They know how to prepare for their time in that space, what's expected of them. And that can just lessen a sense of anxiety, I guess, that the the environment could produce otherwise. And then thinking about things in terms of curricula and the environment, things like agency and control. And so grief by nature also comes with a lack of control, right? And we know that trauma, grief can be traumatic. It may not be for everybody, but it has many overlaps with trauma and trauma-informed practice. And trauma is born out of experiences where we either lack literal control or perceive a lack of control. And so how can we in the classroom give some of that control back to students over their experience at school, over their learning? It might be really small. It might be like integrating you know, choice in reading assignments. It might be like project-based learning where there's a sense of agency over the, the type of learning or the content that folks are choosing to pursue. Or it might be choice in where you're learning or with whom, just to whatever extent you can kind of think of those tenets. I also think about the three pillars of trauma-informed care. This is coming from psychologist Howard Bath, who says that the three pillars of trauma-informed care are safety, connection, and emotional regulation. And so those also kind of guide my thinking in terms of It's not always a direct consideration of loss or discussion about loss, but how are we taking into consideration these entities and how we shape our classroom environment? And then interpersonal support is so critical. We know that human connection is one of our best buffers against trauma, so critical to healing. So whether that's a teacher or a coach or an advisor, thinking intentionally about your relational approach with students. And so how are you Um, providing mentoring, I think it is important to acknowledge a student's loss experience, but certainly to also follow their cues about whether or not they're ready to talk about it. And so there's this fine line between acknowledging a loss, but not forcing a conversation that a student isn't ready for, but making it known that you're willing to be that person or to have that conversation if you, if that's true, if you are, and if you're not, then that's also important to know and identify other folks who might be. And so maybe that's the school counselor, maybe that's a colleague who had a similar life experience, like knowing your own comfort zone. And if you are outside of your comfort zone in a way that could potentially perpetuate harm or perpetuate that sense of othering for a grieving student, then acknowledging that in yourself. And again, going back to that idea of facilitating further connection 
how can you do that in a way that sets up those systems of support? One thing I hear from a lot of people in the education realm is, you know, they're like, this all sounds good, but like, where's the research to back this up? Um, and that's so different than the, the realm I work in, which is really amplifying the voices of the kids and the teens and the young adults mm-hmm. and the adults that I work with. I don't have to show a peer reviewed journal article about kids saying we really like it when people tell us the truth about what happened. I can just share stories from the kids directly. Uh, But in your book, you did do a lot of research into, you know, one of the aspects of grief, which for me just becomes known through the stories of the people I work with, which is that grief really affects us, uh, our cognitive functioning. And I know you did research into like why that is or how it actually affects them. And I just wonder if you could share more about that, knowing that parents and caregivers and teachers are, are likely really interested in knowing like, oh, well, that's why maybe my kid is acting this way or why my teen is unable to remember anything. Absolutely. Yeah. So grief impacts the brain, the body and behavior by way of those things. And so a wonderful resource by Lisa Shulman, who's a neurologist, is a book called Before and After Loss, A Neurologist's Perspective on Grief and the Brain. And that was critical to kind of my taking an inside look into what does grief and loss actually do to the brain. So she found that loss, and that could be tied to a death, but it could be other forms of loss and grief, have a depressive response in the brain and also a fight or flight response. So that stress response, stress hormones released in the body, you know, the prefrontal cortex, which is in charge of higher order functioning, things like executive functioning, impulse control, imagining the future, um, thinking and planning ahead can be impaired because the prefrontal cortex takes a, a back seat in grief, especially in an adolescent context, because in adolescence, your prefrontal cortex is not fully developed anyway. And so we know that teenagers sometimes struggle with impulse control or risk-taking or or planning ahead. And so when then loss or trauma or stress is added to the mix, those functionalities can become further dampened um, and can therefore result in changes in behavior. It looks absolutely different for everybody, but things like increased anger or outbursts or avoidance behaviors on the flip side of that it could be further connection seeking kind of behaviors it's a really wide spectrum but it's important to know that you might see you know changes in behavior manifesting in the classroom and at the same time it might be more challenging to learn in an academic context because of what the brain and the the neurological system is going through I think this is a really critical and and interesting area of the research because those grief behaviors, if we don't always know about the neurological root of them, can be reprimanded or misinterpreted in an academic context in a harmful way. And so I always talk about an adaptation focused lens and looking at these behaviors as assets, as adaptations that students have developed for a grief context. And so something like anger might be serving that student really well in a loss context. Maybe they're in a position where they're needing to defend a a sibling um, in an unsafe situation and they develop this anger as a coping mechanism to serve an unmet need in that moment. But then by nature of, of trauma, of the fight or flight response, our nervous system gets kind of stuck in that mode. And so we can't always 
turn that response off. So in another context like school, where it's outside of the grief or loss context for which this behavior was developed, if we're seeing or manifesting those same sorts of behaviors, um, they're not exactly seen as, as assets in the way that they might be in a different context. And this connects heavily to restorative justice. And we know that in terms of DEI work and inequity in schools, there's bias at play in terms of you know, responses to behavioral challenges in the classroom. I think it's really important to take that step back and think about what is the need at the root of a behavioral change and what are alternative ways that we can work together to meet that. And all that background is so helpful in terms of encouraging adults to bring a more open-minded, maybe compassionate stance to, as you said, behaviors that are really adaptations to mm-hmm. a loss. And I wonder, are, do you have an example or a story around how to then put that into practice? So I can imagine being a teacher, you're like, okay, I, you know, this behavior I'm seeing, which is not working in this environment, say, let's say it's an adaptation to the loss and it's, you know, student doing the best they can, but then how do we shift the response in a way that either helps the adaptation be more contextually responsive or how do we make that work? Mm -hmm. It's a very good question. I, a few things come to mind. So first thinking proactively about the classroom environment and those pillars that I was talking about before, right? The safety connection, emotional regulation, if we're taking sort of a proactive brief responsive approach to the learning environment as a whole, that can already help folks who are grieving. And by making space for regulatory activities or if we're having those caring relationships put in place that are already providing support, all of that starts to create a more sort of healing centered environment where those outbursts might be less likely to happen, but that's not to say that they still won't, right? And so when they do, I think it's a very valid question of how do you handle that in a way that is um, helpful to the student experiencing the behavioral change, but also helpful to others who might be in the learning space and might be impacted. Um, In the book, I talk a lot about how to create space outside of that moment to meet and talk with the student one-on-one. And so you're not ever wanting to kind of reprimand or call attention to this sort of behavioral adaptation in front of other folks in the classroom, because that gets into an area where you could be violating this student's vulnerability or story or making them feel othered in a, in a way that's not um, effective. And so ideally in a situation and, and time when someone is not activated, is not having that behavioral response, like how can you meet in a calmer moment and kind of go over what you've been noticing, what's been happening, and always collaborate with the student. I'm a big fan of empowering students to identify what's going on for themselves instead of being the teacher who's saying, you know, I'm seeing this and it's not okay. Instead, like, what are you noticing in yourself? What are you noticing about the way that you're reacting in class and how is it going for you? How might it be going for others? And then collaborating with them to once you've identified kind of the the behavior and maybe you've identified the need behind it, how can you collaborate with them to think about an alternative way of either having that need met or having a different kind of model for behavior in the classroom? Um, In the book, I offer some sentence starters that can provide sort of a framework 
for engaging in those conversations. It's certainly also dependent upon the age of the folks that you're working with. So an 18 year old might be able to engage in that sort of self-reflection in a way that a 12 year old might not be able to do so yet. But just this idea of, of de-escalating in the moment and then creating spaces for reflection. And so really reflection is moving to the other end of the spectrum from, from reprimanding. We talked a little earlier about how, you know, what's truly supportive for students is that ongoing relationship, the connection, the safety, and not, you know, saying the perfect thing at the perfect time. And, and I think about how much pressure as adults, you know, we do put on ourselves to get it exactly right. And in your book, you write about the role that getting it wrong and doing repair plays in the creation of these relationships and a grief responsive you know, educational setting. And just can you say a little bit more about what you mean about the power of repair? Yeah, so apology, it's interesting because I think apology can be so hard, but also so healing for both both parties involved. We see how hard it is when we're working with six-year-olds, right? And something happens at recess and you as an educator have to facilitate an apology between those students. But we also see it as adults, like in the workplace or in our home lives, if something happens, it's really hard to kind of take ownership over, you know what, I should have approached that differently. And that requires a level of self-awareness and reflection and humility that can be really challenging but in a grief context can also be incredibly healing. In the book, I talk about what's called interactive repair. And so really that's just a a more scientific, fancy way of saying apology. But when we model that as adults, that's something that students in a trauma context may or may not have access to adults who are actively modeling that interactive repair, this idea that if you mess up in a relationship, in a friendship, in a student-teacher relationship, in a parent-child you know, child relationship, it's something that you can actively repair and then move forward and still have a positive relationship and outcome. Um, in a loss context, students may come to be kind of socialized to assume that there's this fear of additional loss, right? And so if if they mess up in a relationship, there's this fear that that relationship will then be another form of loss. And so when you say something that you wish you hadn't said, you realize there was a moment of silence that you wish you had filled, or you you know, shared a, a platitude, everything happens for a reason that you realize wasn't helpful and wanna take back. Um, it's relatively rare that folks actually go back to the grieving student and address what they wish that they had done differently in that relational approach. I think because we as adults assume that we shouldn't like admit when we're wrong in a relational context with with younger people, Um, but that moment holds the capacity to both model that that's possible, to model that a relationship can heal and repair and move forward and be so often, you know, stronger after those moments, It, it might, facilitate a stronger connection or relationship. Um, so it models that for them, but also hopefully patches the, the relationship after whatever moment had occurred. I think about how as like someone who's dealing with grief as a kid or as a teen, that there's likely to be a series of moments of missed opportunities and moments of disconnection where an adult or another student in their life says or does something in response to their grief that just doesn't feel good at all. 
But without that repair, where you get the opportunity to feel what does feel good, you could get to the place of just assuming like, this is just how grief feels. Like, this is just what it's like to be someone who's grieving in the world. It just feels totally isolating and disconnecting. And you don't even know maybe what you need or what, how to ask for something you might need until there is that moment of repair. Someone comes to you and says, oh, I totally messed up. I really wish I had said or done this. You really deserve to have somebody who listens or you deserve to have someone who remembers to ask questions or you deserve this. And then I think, oh, that child or teen is now learning what feels good and how to articulate that maybe in the future to ask for what they need or to help somebody else understand when they're acting or doing or saying something that is creating that disconnect too. So I hadn't thought about the how much it can help to have an apology in terms of being able to advocate for your own needs in the future. Right. And it helps to make grief a less othering experience, right? And so the reason I think that we're socialized into feeling when we are grieving that we shouldn't talk about what we're going through is because of those missed moments that you're talking about. And so if, if there is not that repair, if nobody regrets that silence and comes back to let us know about that, then we internalize that experience to feel like, oh, this must mean that my loss isn't supposed to be discussed in the context of this or maybe any other relationship. This is something that should be kept inside, which we know does not help the healing process, right? And can create that insecurity, that sense of insecurity or, or otherness that can be detrimental to someone's self-image or to their development. Well, Brittany, I'm really grateful your book, Learning from Loss, is in the world. And I know from talking with others in their grief that moments of celebration and moments of accomplishment can activate that shadow side of grief that comes with it. And I wonder what it was like for you to get to this milestone of writing this amazing book, publishing it, putting it out in the world, doing interviews around it, and knowing that the book, in a sense, exists because your dad died and he isn't here to celebrate in that accomplishment with you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No one has ever asked me that question, but it's absolutely a part of the experience. It's the motivation behind the project. But then there is, of course, this moment of, you know, I wish that this person could see what I, I did with the help of many others, right? This is a collaborative sort of accomplishment. But to that end as well, um, one of my closest high school mentors actually passed away to COVID a couple, because of COVID a couple of years ago. And I always assumed that I would share my first publication with him. And so the um, dedication page in the book highlights those people. But I think it's really powerful to be able to work on a project that feels like a tribute. And so I had that experience at 14, creating this dance performance that I mentioned in the beginning, right? That was a tribute performance right after my loss. And that was a healing experience. And this feels like a tribute in a different way. And so of course it's mixed emotions. It's, it brings up grief and it can be challenging, but also feels meaningful because it feels like a way to also share the lessons that my dad taught me. And that then, you know, in my loss experience, lessons that mentors taught me, I feel like a vehicle to pass those lessons along. So I, I kind of view it less about me as the author and more about channeling these other people's incredible contributions through me and out into the world. So for listeners who want to get a hold of your book and to connect with um, the work that you are doing is you are a prolific writer, the hundreds of articles, it seems like out there in the world and your website and your consulting. What are some ways for people to connect with you? 
Sure. So the grief responsive teaching website is just griefresponsiveteaching.com. I'm also on Instagram. The handle is at griefresponsiveteaching, Twitter at brcollins27. And then the book itself, there's links to it on my website, but also is available through Heinemann Publishing, the Heinemann website, heinemann.com. It's also on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Great. Well, listeners, like I do every single time, all those links will be in the show notes so that you can reach out um, to Brittany and to connect with her work and get a hold of her amazing book. Brittany, thank you again for taking time out of your Monday evening to talk with me and just for this book that you've created. I'm really grateful for you and for, uh, for that work. Thank you so much for having me and also for the incredible work that you do every day and also your wonderful contributions to the book. I could not be where I am without specialists and you know thinkers and scholars and folks like you who are doing this work on the ground every day. So it means a lot to be able to share this with you and with the, the community of listeners. And listeners, I say it each and every time to you, but thank you for being part of our community, for making the show mean what it does. We always love when you can share an episode with someone in your life who think you think might be helped by it. You can also reach out directly to me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. And I'd love to hear from you if you are tuning in from outside of the United States. And I'd also love to hear from you if you are someone who has had someone in your life die of COVID-19. It could be a family member, a friend, a community member, um, and would be willing to share a little bit about your experience with me for a project that I am working on. You can find all of our past episodes at our website, dougy.org, as well as our downloadable tip sheets and information about our local programming. So thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. 